And it's all to him, isn't it? Yeah, fantastic. Well, good to have you. Uh, look, it was mentioned that maybe some of you are back in church for the first time in 2018. Welcome as a welcome. Uh, so uh, as I already mentioned, welcome. It's great to have you here. Uh, look, if you, and as Malcolm mentioned, there may be uh, people never been in church before. It's great to have you here. Great to have you. Uh, our real heart is that uh, you'll find something that you'll never find. Uh, this world will never be able to give you. And that's something of life, and it's actually found through uh, Jesus Christ. So welcome this morning. Great to have you here. Uh, I want to continue. I want to just talk today uh, about something I, I started last year, which isn't too long ago, is it? And we've continued on this year. And um, um, some of you are well aware that Jesus Christ, at the age of 30, uh, I want to release the children, by the way, too. All those who are going are not released to children, sorry, just the children. If you want to receive a worksheet, uh, you can quickly pop down the back, grab a worksheet with some pencils, and uh, you can work through my message, because um, the children, we're usually in children's church, but they're here with us today, which is brilliant. I love kids in church. And um, you can work through my message on that worksheet, and if you uh, fill it out, guaranteed, you'll get a Fredo frog. Is that cool? Guaranteed. Uh, Children's Church will be starting in a couple of weeks' time, as in other things will be starting to uh, kick in uh, for the rest of the year as well. Uh, look, and if you're new this morning, I just wanted to let you know our facilities, there's children, there is a parents' room for you. You're welcome to take use that. That's on back there on my left, your right. There's toilets over here. Uh, there's disabled toilets there behind us. So just uh, you can avail yourself to those things if necessary. Fantastic. So, I was, um, Jesus, it's a good topic, isn't it? Jesus was 30 years of age. Can you just imagine a 30? Who's 30 here this morning? Put your hand down, Jeff. Who's exactly 30 this morning? This, my goodness, it's got a bunch of people who lie in our church. <laughs> That's okay. Always remember it when I hit the age of 30, I thought, because Jesus started his ministry at 30, I was a youth pastor at the time, and I thought, gee, I'm really going to start ministry now. <laughs> I had that thought. And I thought, but that's not a good thought because Jesus died at 33. I <laughs> uh, don't think that. So anyway, Jesus did start his ministry. Who's 31? Two? 31? There you go. I believe you, Rio. Others I wouldn't. 32, 33, 30, there we go. All the 33-year-olds, don't worry, you won't die. <laughs> okay. We're all set, Michelle. All the children are good? Fantastic. So what did I say saying? Jesus started his ministry at 30. And... Uh, You don't like that, Lord? Is it just me? Okay. Just try the connection. We're all good. If it does it again, I'll just grab the other mic. That's fine. 
What was I saying? Jesus started his ministry at 30, and on the northwestern shore of the Lake of Galilee, around Capernaum, if you kind of if you remember the Lake of Galilee sits there in the, in the Middle East there, and up on this kind of left-hand corner, northwestern corner, is where Jesus started his ministry at the age of 30. He, got, he kind of went up on a hill. I, I call it the uh, Mount of Beatitudes. It's not literally called that, but that's what he went up there, and he kind of preached his first message to uh, hundreds of people. I'm not sure how many, maybe thousands, but hundreds of people. And he preached this message, and it talks about um, this, this wonderful thing called Beatitudes, which is really meaning just... Um, being blessed because Jesus went on to make some statements and he said blessed are you blah 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 blessed several times and uh, um, it's interesting three years later Jesus kind of climbed another hill with a cross on his back and they nailed him to it and it only took three years of ministry it wasn't a long time but it's amazing how much he can do in three years he affected the world uh, well his world uh, which has affected our world and there they nailed him to the cross, and then he practically was preaching. We're going to just dump this thing. This one? Can I grab this one? Great. Oh, uh, well, different tone, isn't it? So at the age of 33, he, he was practiced what he shared. He put into practice what he'd shared three years ago. Um, Jesus always, if he was, when he walked, uh, talked the talk, he was always going to walk the walk. There's a great thing about Christ. He never said something and never actually, um, he followed through with it or practiced it himself. And there was a number of things that he took on himself and the things that he'd done. He said, when he said at the age of 30, that he then put into place at the age of 33 or actually um, showed us practically how it lives so, or how it folds out. And when Jesus preached at the age of 30, he really preached on how we're to live. And at the age of 33, he showed us how to live uh, when he died on that cross. And one of the things that he said, uh, he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, he said, blessed are the meek. And if you remember this statement, it says, for they shall inherit the what? The earth. Great statement. Um, what does it really mean? Well, we see in Luke 23, 24, Jesus then on a cross, he said, as he looked down at all the people who had crucified him, all the soldiers had crucified him, the people who had, had um, put him there, the people who had betrayed him, he looked down at them and he says, Father, forgive them for they really don't know what they're doing. So at 30, he says, um, you know, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. And then in Luke 23, when he's nailed on the cross, he showed us what meekness is because meekness, meekness is being able to give up an area of our life that wants to retaliate. Meekness is not weakness, it's strength under control. It's that area of our life that we don't want to fight fire with fire. We don't want to um, exchange insult for insult because Jesus never did. They, tried to, they were about to stone him one day. He didn't pick up the stones first and throw them at him them first. No, he just walked on back through the crowd and got out of there. He didn't retaliate. They insulted him. He didn't insult back. They nailed him to a cross and, they, and he forgave them. That's meekness. In actual fact, meekness is being able to um, possess your own emotions and soul. It's the ability to be able to... Uh, um, to say, I have control of that area of my life that wants to get aggressive and retaliate, and that area of my life that is a react, reactionary, um, a reaction to what people do to me. It's possessing that area. And it's interesting because Jesus always got angry when heaven or his father 
was abused or misused, but he never got angry. Listen to this. He never got angry when he was personally attacked. He never got angry at that. But he did get pretty uh, emotional and pretty um, animated when maybe his heavenly father like in the temple, when Jesus walked into the temple that day and, they, and they're misusing the temple or misusing the church area for buying and selling and trading and ripping people off. And he got upset, of course, and done some amazing, pretty practical and literal things there. But so we see Jesus was in possession of himself. And um, God wants you to be the same. So when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, really... Blessed are the meek, because the first way to inherit the earth is to inherit your own soul, your own emotions, your reactionary nature, and not to fight fire with fire. Jesus went on then to say, blessed, in the same chapter and verse, verse Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Interesting. And then in Luke 23, 20, uh, 46, um, Luke's gospel, we see Jesus then uh, makes this last statement on the cross before he actually breathed his last. You don't have to put that one up, not yet. That's not it. Um, he, he, said, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last and died. So what, what, what's the connection there? Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. See, Jesus died how he lived his life, always acknowledging his heavenly Father that he needed God in his life. And yet he was the Son of God. And yet in many ways, he was God, wasn't he? He was not just a man, but he was God. And yet he acknowledged his need of his heavenly Father. How much more should we live a life realizing that without we need God in our life? And that's what poor, poor in spirit is. Always acknowledging that without him, I, I'm poor in spirit. You know, it's not talking about physical poorness. It's not talking about not having stuff in life. It's not talking about that. It's talking about understanding that we're really just poor in spirit. We need him all the time. And that's not a that's not a put down. That's an exciting discovery and revelation you can have that uh, where we understand that we're poor in spirit. And Jesus uh, at, on the cross said, Father, I need you as I step into death. Would you just look after me as I step into this different season of my life? Because he was literally not just going into death. He was also going to, of course, eventually end up in heaven with his heavenly Father. So poor in spirit is not so much an action but a conviction in your heart that I continually need God's presence to help me do life well. I continually need him. And without him, every part of my life, I am spiritually, here's the word, bankrupt. I don't want to be spiritually bankrupt. I don't want to go to the vault of my life, spiritual life, my spiritual vault and say, God, are you in there? I want it to be full. I want God's presence in there because God's presence makes the difference. It says there's fullness of joy in God's presence. There's whole, so many benefits in God's His presence as we even experienced that this morning. So to be poor in spirit is to have that understanding. Jesus fulfilled it on the cross. So now we come uh, to another one. This morning, and in Matthew 5, 7, and this is the one, you can flick up there, thanks. EJ, it says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain what? Mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And then we see in, once again, uh, this guy, he was a doctor called Luke. He wrote in chapter 23, 43, Jesus answered, um, what was happening? Jesus is on the cross. Just imagine he's on the cross. 
And Jesus says this, truly I tell you today you will be in paradise with me, or you'll be with me in paradise, or another word is heaven. Who was Jesus talking to? Well, there were two criminals. There was one on either side of Jesus. They were nailed on a cross as well. And so all three of them up on the Calvary, and Jesus is in the middle. And Jesus speaks to one of the, um, uh, the criminals and responds to him and says, today you'll be in heaven with me. What an incredible act of mercy. Because here's a man who deserves to die, who's on the cross because of what he's done wrong, uh, and yet Jesus shows him incredible mercy in the, what you could call his 11th hour. I'm glad we have a God of the 11th hour, hey? Um, those who commit their life to the Lord Jesus Christ at the age of whatever early age it may be, let's just say seven, can find on, even on their deathbed the reality that God can still receive them and love them and embrace them at the, as they pass from this life to the next. Isn't it amazing if their heart is responsive to him? It just takes a heart that's responsive, isn't it? And he gives the same benefit of heaven to the, as he does to the person who's lived their life for Christ all the years. Some of us grapple with that thought because we thought, surely, you know, if you've done the right thing all your life, you should get more benefits. <laughs> We like that thought. Well, that's another message. But the reality is that's called God's mercy and grace, isn't it? It's amazing. So if you think about it, the greatest illustration, the greatest illustration of mercy is found right there at Cavity, uh, Cavity, Calvary. <laughs> Calvary, when Jesus pardoned this criminal that day. Because there was another criminal, let's just kind of get into the scene, into the story here. There was another criminal on the other side, and, the, and that criminal, um, I suppose, his reaction to Jesus was, it was more of mockery. It was more of, you know, if you, because this criminal said to Jesus, if you are the Son of God and you could save yourself, save me. This criminal was totally consumed by his own himself. He was totally looking to what he can get out of it for himself, and and yet, as he did that, the, the criminal on the other side of Jesus, who I call the good criminal, just for the sake of differentiating between the two, <laughs> is that a kill? The good criminal said, hey, dude, you, oh, they're there. Um, you know, wake up to yourself because you're pulling down someone who doesn't deserve to be there. We deserve to face the punishment we're facing because of what we've done wrong. But this dude, it's Jesus in the middle here, he hasn't done anything wrong and yet he's suffering. He hasn't done a thing, and yet he's still going through it like we are. So have a bit of respect. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but have a, you know, have a bit of respect for Jesus. And then this man, the good criminal, says to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, um, would you just simply remember me when you come into heaven? So this, this criminal obviously had a belief in Jesus, opened his heart, showed mercy to Jesus. He said, I understand you're, you're going through something you don't deserve. I deserve it. You don't. Would you just remember me when you come into your Father's kingdom in heaven? And Jesus turned around and he done something quite incredibly amazing right there and then. And he said to this criminal, do you know what, son, today you're going to actually be with me in heaven. Wow. This criminal showed mercy. Guess what he received? Mercy. Now you may say, did Jesus, could have Jesus saved both criminals? Yes. Not only did he could have saved both, but I think he wanted to. In actual fact, I think he wants to save everybody. Why didn't he? The heart difference was the problem. 
This criminal over here had no heart or receptivity, no mercy in his heart for anybody else. He was just focused on number one, myself. Save me. This criminal over here, he was thinking of everybody else. He was thinking of Jesus. He was thinking of the criminal on the other side. Wake up to yourself, buddy. Change your attitude because there could come a better outcome for this. I know we may be in a little bit of pain right now, but there's a better future possibly. But he never did. And then he thought of Jesus and then he just said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus says, you'll be in paradise. Wow. He had mercy. He was showing mercy. I love that simple thought this morning. Um, that's why Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, that they shall obtain mercy. See, church, this morning, mercy opens our heart to receive from God the blessings of mercy to us. See, mercy shown can be mercy received. That's how it happens. That's how it flows in life. I love the way God is because God has shown me mercy ever, even before I ever showed him or anybody else mercy. That's incredible. That's what he does for people. That's, that's the way of our God, isn't it? It's amazing. Two men met one particular day on the 20th of December, 1943, in a very unusual way. These names you won't know, but I pray that you would remember them after today, because one was Franz Stigler. Franz Stigler was a German. Um, he flew Messerschmitts, you know, those little German fighter, fighter planes. He flew them right through the Second World War. Uh, and uh, he'd taken, he'd shot down many Allied bombers, American and English bombers, and of course, in shooting them down, killed many of the Allied forces. He'd flown over a hundred missions. Um, he'd actually it talks about how Friends was quite a, quite a hero. He was a bit of a guy everybody looked up to because he'd actually had to uh, parachute, you know, eject out of his plane on five occasions, but survived. Wow. So Franz was flying his Messerschmitt on the uh, 20th of December, five days before Christmas in 1943, and he came across an American bomber that had been crippled by German fire. The back tail um, had been shot away. Um, the back gunner of the bomber, the B-17, it was an American bomber, he could see as he flew up to this plane, aiming his guns at this plane, ready to disintegrate it and destroy it for the last time and just this crippled plane needed to be taken out. Here's a picture that an artist actually um, drew of this scene and so as he flew up he could see in the, the tail gunner was dead and in actual fact they talk about how the blood of the tail gunner had frozen, the blood was, had frozen as icicles on the gun and he could see and then he, he just halted, he just kind of hesitated for a moment and he flew up alongside and he looked into the window of the front of this bomber and he saw an American guy called Charles Brown. He was the other guy, I want you to remember his name. Charles Brown was the pilot. He was 21 years of age. He was from West Virginia in America and he was trying to keep this plane up, let alone, and as he looked to the left and saw the Messerschmitt, is your friends, he thought, well, this is the end for me. Just shoot me out of the sky and we'll some of us are dead already, we're all going to die. And yet Franz hesitated long enough to, uh, to take up and look at the situation. And Franz actually flew up alongside, it says about three feet from the wing of this bomber, 
and escorted the bomber all the way to the English Channel, turned around and came back to Germany. And Charles Brown and the rest of the crew who were alive actually got across the English Channel, landed somewhere in England, and survived to tell the story. That was the day that Charles Brown and Franz Stigler met for the first time. They never spoke to each other, but they exchanged glances. They exchanged, you know, just a wave to each other. And something happened, and it's been told that that is the greatest act of chivalry or greatest act of mercy, one of the greatest acts of mercy that was shown in the Second World War. Now, the story goes on because on that fateful day on the 20th of December, that was the start of something. And after the war was finished, both Charles and Franz had a desire to find each other. So 47 years later, folks, 47 years later, because Franz had now immigrated to Canada and he was living in Canada as a successful businessman. Charles lived in America and they found each other. And 47 years later, they, they found each other. And before they even spoke to each other, they wept on each other's shoulders. Because Charles was looking into the man who could have executed him so easily and had done so for many English allies and American allies. And yet this one occasion... Friends said, I won't do it. Now, the story goes like this. Friends, when he flew alongside that bomber that fateful day on the 20th of December, he looked into the eyes of Charles, who was 21 years of age, and he thought he put himself in that position. And he said, for me to shoot them out of the sky that day would have been so easy, physically easy, but it was very difficult because I looked upon them, and it's like trying to shoot a man who was in a parachute, helpless, can't retaliate, can't fire back, and he says, I can't do it. And what he did was, because their navigation system was out, he actually guided them back to the English Channel so that they could find their way back home. And then he took himself back to um, Germany, knowing that he could be court-martialed and even executed for his act, he told the lie. Sometimes I think there's a good lie. <laughs> he told a lie and said, oh, the bomber went down, was shot down over the English Channel. Now, he, he didn't know for sure whether that had happened, but he was kind of guessing it possibly didn't. And it wasn't, he never told the truth until 47 years later when he met up with Charles and told the story to the press. Both men, friends, received an order of honor medal from a European um, government for the, one of the greatest acts of mercy shown in the Second World War. Charles received an Order of Honor Medal from the Americans for being able to pilot and finally get his bomber back to safety, thus saving several men's lives in his own life, apart from the ones that had already been shot and dead in the, in the, in the plane itself. Interesting enough, both men died in 2008. Franz died at the age of 93. Charles died at the age of 86. And they both died in the same year. But for many, 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 many years before they died, they celebrated and enjoyed each other's company and love for one another. And I watched a video, which is too long to show you here, and the video literally shows Franz looking at Charles and in the most dignified and manly way says, Charles, I love you, mate. It's a great act of mercy, isn't it? And you know, I want to say that's what mercy is this morning. Hello, hello. Mercy is understanding that microphones will not always work and never getting upset with anybody. 
because it just happens. Now you have me in a different tone. Where was I? See, mercy is, that's literally what the, what the original um, Greek word means. It means to place, mercy means to place yourself in a position where you identify with those who need mercy. It's to actually start to feel what they feel and to think what they think. And, and while we may never be able to do that totally, at least we can think on those things. To place ourselves in a position, because you know, when you place yourself in a position to think, what, what would I feel like if I was in that situation? Then you start to really find that you identify and you'll actually have mercy on someone else. You'll actually show mercy to someone else. That's what Jesus continually done. He placed himself in the position on the cross that you and I should have been on. He identified with us and he showed incredible mercy to us when he forgave us through his death on the cross. What an incredible act of mercy and kindness Jesus showed. What an incredible act, friends, that German pilot who had so many times shot down other people and yet for once he said, no, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to do it. Incredible act. Because you know why? Because he put himself in the position of Charles Brown and said, how would I feel if I had no way to retaliate? I was caught with a crippled plane and I wasn't sure that I was even going to make it back to, to um, you know, back to, to, to England, how would I feel? I'd want someone to have mercy on me, and so that's why I did. Incredible, isn't it? This is the picture that Jesus wants to paint for us of mercy. See, everyone wants to be shown mercy when they have done something wrong. Don't we? When I've done something wrong, I want to be shown mercy. I blew it. It was a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. Even things on purpose, I shouldn't have done it. But when someone wrongs us, Maybe quickly we forget mercy has been shown to us and how we need to remember, how we need to remember. That doesn't mean we, we, we allow people to get away with stuff, no. But the reality is we show mercy to them and how we deal with them and how we look for them and support them and help them while still coming through the consequences of what they face. See, the spirit of the world is not a merciful world, would you agree? Um, because the world is about pride and self-centeredness and ego, I find, so many times. And, and if popular culture was writing the Beatitudes and writing this statement, they would have possibly said, blessed is the person who looks out for themselves, who looks out for themselves. And so when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, he's, he's being totally, totally countercultural to the culture of his day. And would I say, not just the culture of his day, but the culture of today as well, because we find a world that doesn't often, you know, and there is some wonderful acts of mercy out there, but often sometimes there's not too, particularly to the people who don't look like you or act like you or people who are different. Um, mercy. God wants you to be an agent of change in 2018, an agent of mercy. He wants you to be an agent, a person who is willing to go uh, the, uh, you know, go the extra mile, so to speak, and show mercy. You know, there's a guy called Paul, and he wrote this verse in the Bible in Ephesians 4.2. He said this, um, be patient with each other because he will catch up. There he is. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I just want to emphasize the word patient. Patience is mercy, isn't it? Practical mercy. Being patient. Being patient. Um, being patient with people's quirks. 
um, their peculiarities, their mannerisms, their odd behavior, their irritable habits. Do you live with someone who's got irritable habits? Have you got someone in your life who's got different mannerisms and peculiarities about life? How do you look on them? Uh, do you show mercy or do you get irritated, angry, uptight with people's personal quirks? We're all different, aren't we? That's what Paul's saying. Be patient with it. Paul's been very practical. He's saying, be patient with each other. Make allowances for not others' faults. It's not, it's saying, it's not, it's not justifying their faults. It's just saying, make allowances, understanding one another. Find out what really happened. Why did they do that? Why did they yell at someone else? Why did they cut you off in traffic? It's probably because someone else uh, done something to them and it really wasn't your problem. It was just that you were there to receive the brunt of their emotional stress and feelings at the time, why don't you give them just a chance maybe? And often, you know, in society, we don't have the chance to find out what really caused them to be so uptight. But, you know, within the family, the church, or within your friendship group, or your work group, or your school group, or your home, you know, Paul is giving us some great advice here on how to live with our those that we are with all the time, that, that know us best, husbands and wives and children and parents and, and loved ones. We live with them all the time and we see their quirks. If, if, you know, if, if I was to get my daughters to come and tell you about my peculiarities, I'd, 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 you know, I maybe have to be out of the room, I think, for those things to be shared. But the reality is they've had to live with that as I live with theirs. And, you know, and it's the, in our homes are the place, often I find that the greatest mercy has to be reflected first and foremost. Isn't that true? You know, last night, Michelle and I, in the last uh, three days, have got really engrossed in, in, not totally engrossed, we've just been watching one match in particular, a young man called Alex De... How do you pronounce it? Anybody been watching the Sydney um, International? De Minor. Is that a Filipino name? De Minor. No, no. Okay, we've got it right. So, um, so we've been, who's been watching Alex? He's 18 years of age. And he's been beating people in the top 30. And we got really kind of interested. And last night we were watching these, his finals of the Sydney International. And he's in the finals and he's playing another guy who's 21, Russian. He's a really good player. And he was winning and doing okay. And then it came to the... Because th- we had to record it because we're busy doing something else. And Michelle and I recorded it. And um, so we're watching it. And we get to the last game. And you know what happened? <laughs> Michelle flicked the button and we lost it. We didn't totally lose it, but we didn't. And I made a snide remark. Right there was a good opportunity to be really merciful. (laughs) And I missed it. (laughs) Because I said, well, that's it. Not with a loud voice, but I said, well, that's it. Can't see the game. (laughs) I'm glad you think that's funny. I didn't at the time. I was upset. <laughs> and then Michelle kind of responded and said, you, you know, something along the lines, don't get upset. I said, I'm not upset. Oh, I can lie as well. And then I calmed down and we just, in actual fact, Michelle rewound it. Praise God. But you know what? When you rewind something, you get to the part where they're giving out the trophies. <laughs> And Michelle says, we don't know what the big bowl means. I said, honey, that is the, the Russian won it. 
So we sat and listened to this speech, and I calmed down, and I realized that I had to preach this morning. And uh, so, so I realized that I'd better swallow my pride, and I'm sorry, Michelle. Forgive me. Thank you. I just did it publicly. Um, but you know what? Sometimes that's the show, place where we just need to start to show mercy. It's just in our places of the people who know us the best. Because, you know, if you can do it with maybe those who are closest, certainly you can do it a lot better sometimes with those who are out there in the world. Jesus had to show mercy. He had 12 disciples that, you know, not all of them were the, you know, the, the brightest sparks in the, you know, in the candle, whatever you want to say. They, they, they kind of messed it up fairly big, and yet he shows incredible mercy. In actual fact, Paul, Paul, um, You've got to think about this. Um, there's another verse Paul wrote in Ephesians 4. Well, Paul wasn't a disciple. He became an apostle. Ephesians 4.31, for the sake of the kids, let's put this one up because their, their worksheet has this one on. And it says this. Paul says, don't get bitter or angry or use harsh words with each other or that hurt each that hurt each other. Don't yell at one another or curse or ever be rude. Instead, be kind and merciful and forgive others just as God forgave you because of Christ. Did you notice there in that verse that the Bible contrasts six negative um, responses? If you want to be merciful, it says don't be bitter, don't get angry, don't use harsh words, don't yell, don't curse and don't be rude. Does anybody kind of want to kind of own up to those six this week? Anybody kind of said those six? Don't put your hand up as a rhetorical question. Put your hand down, Ben. It's fine. He's not. He's not even listening to me. Yes, he is. The word, the the words, the world's response to that is often characterized by bitterness and harsh words. But Paul says something amazing here. He talks about be kind and merciful and forgive others, just as God forgave you in Christ Jesus. I've got to say this: What qualifies Paul to write this type of statements? Because you think about Paul's life. If you don't know, let me give you a snapshot in 30 seconds. Paul, before he became Paul, was named Saul. And, Saul, and he, he was hell-bent on genocide of all the Christian race. He wanted every Christian, to anybody who believed in Christ, he wanted them dead. He literally um, oversaw that whole process himself and watched Stephen be stoned. He was there, involved himself in that. He killed Christians for a living. What a job. Isn't that wonderful? Making other people's lives miserable and destroying other people's lives. This is what Paul was involved in. And yet God met him on, the, on, on a certain road one day in a miraculous and in a wonderful way. And, uh, and Paul was changed forevermore from Saul, namely his name was changed from Saul to Paul, but his life was changed more importantly. He had an encounter. And you may think about Paul was not the best choice, God, to choose because Paul went on to plant more churches than anybody else in all of Asian Minor in that New Testament times. He planted more churches than than Peter, than anybody else, Thomas, or anybody else like that. And yet, why, why would God choose Paul? I mean, this guy who killed Christians, and now he's building churches, and not just the physical buildings, but he's building and, and establishing the churches all over the Middle East. What qualifies him? He was the worst of sinners, it says in 1 Timothy. Paul says, I was the worst of sinners. But isn't it so that maybe God chooses the worst and shows us in Scripture to remind us that God still takes the reminders of the incredible mercy that He shows to people and the incredible mercy that He wants us to show as the church of the living God to other people. Maybe He allows Paul to be in there because He, 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 he is an example of incredible mercy. 
because mercy was shown to him. At his darkest hour, when Paul is killing people, God touches his life, turns his heart around, shows him incredible mercy and grace, and then we see what happens is that Paul goes on to do um, exactly what the opposite of what he was doing before. And folks, may we ever be aware that when we just start to think that maybe there's people who don't belong in God's church, that we're reminded that God's church is for every person. In the end, I know the hearts of people have got to be, something's got to flick over and around and change there too. But God's church is for every person. He's for, salvation is for every person. And when we, when we start to get that sense of maybe that maybe for this person it's too far, they've done too much, just remember Paul, the worst of sinners, and yet God used him. Quite literally, we've got to be thankful because the churches of the world were established out of those churches that were established in Jesus' day. And the gospel has been proclaimed since those times. What an amazing thing. Jesus gave the apostle who needed the most mercy um, the opportunity to reflect mercy to people and to establish mercy amongst the Christians. Mercy is giving people what they need, not what they deserve. Okay? That's what God did with you and me. God gave us what we needed and not what we deserved. He gives us grace and mercy. I am so thankful for that. You know, this morning, as we reflect on that powerful statement, blessed are the merciful because they will receive mercy. And then Jesus, of course, showed incredible mercy to the, the thief or the criminal on the cross. As we reflect on that, reflect just for a moment on our own lives. And, the, and I want us just to share communion this morning. Uh, you might wonder what communion is. It's just simply taking a little cup of juice it's taking like a little bit of biscuit and we together eat together. And it's not going to, those who are taking it up could do that now and the musos could come. Communion is not a meal or anything. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of, of receiving. Sometimes um, communion needs to be realized. It's not, it's not a ritual this morning. We need to not have a ritual this morning around communion table. It's not something that... Uh, becomes just something of a habit. It's, it's not just a, it, it, it's a powerful thing that blesses us. And I want us to understand that today as we come around the communion table. Communion is us realizing that Jesus Christ took on everything that we should have taken on. He, took, he was our substitute, okay? Communion is not a ritual to be observed, but a blessing. Listen to this. It's a blessing to be received, Okay? In your hands today, not literally, that's not the blessing, but it represents the blessing, what God wants to pour into your life. And I want you to understand this. Let me read a passage of Scripture to you as you sit there. Just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 23 to 28. This is what Paul said to the Corinthian church. It was a church that was established it says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 
Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so a woman examine themselves, and do, and so let them eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As we take come to this, you'll see that it says in Scripture, as I just um, shared with you, not to eat in an unworthy manner. Now, we've got to understand this. Eating in an unworthy manner is not describing the actions that the people, of, sorry, it's describing the actions that the people of Corinth were involved in, okay? Um, because if you read the whole passage, you'll see that this church had made the communion time together like a meal and some were hungry and they were pushing other people aside at the communion table and grabbing the food because they were hungry themselves. The other thing was happening, if you read the passage further, you'll see that some of those in the church in Corinth were staying a little bit too long at the communion table and because it was wine, they were drinking and getting drunk, okay? You won't get drunk on what's this morning, it's grape juice. So when, when Paul says, um, don't eat in an unworthy manner, understand that Paul isn't um, talking about, uh, he's not talking about, um, he's talking about, sorry, what the, Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, in Corinth were actually doing wrong. He's not he, taking communion because um, we're all unworthy people, would you agree? We're all unworthy people. See, communion is for all of us. And eating in an unworthy manner is not saying, well, if you're unworthy and you've done this and this and this wrong, you can't partake. No, it's for you. It's for you. We're all unworthy, and that's what communion is for. Unworthy within ourselves, but in some incredible mercy by Jesus Christ is shown to us. It's His mercy that's shown to us. Um, and so when Paul says unworthy, he's describing the actions of the Corinth church. And he's saying that's what they did wrong. And then in Corinthian church, um, we see that he says, um, examine yourself. Well, you know what examining yourself is that you're not looking at yourself, but you're looking to Jesus Christ. So this morning you take a moment to just see if you're looking at Jesus and not yourself. Oh, this is good for me. Oh, yes, it's good for me. No, you're looking at what Christ's done and not what we've got to do. Christ has already done it. And so when you examine yourself, examine your heart that you're looking to Jesus this morning and not looking at yourself. Remember the thief on the cross on this side, the bad thief or the bad criminal? All he was doing was consumed about himself. No mercy for Christ, no mercy for his mate on the other side. Oh, save me. And yet the the good criminal, he was saying, hey, have mercy. Jesus, you're facing stuff that you never should have faced. He had mercy on Christ. It wasn't about him. He was concerned about others. And as we come to communion this morning, that's what it's about. It's about not looking to ourselves and, oh, I've done this or this. Christ is aware that you're what you failed in. If you've repented and spoken it out to him and confessed it, now it's time to look to Christ. That's what communion is about. It's to look to what he's done. It's to remember 
It's taking the cup and the bread and saying, I'm focusing on your mercy for me. I remember all that you've done for me. And that way it becomes a blessing, folks, not just some little ritual that we do on a Sunday. It's a blessing. Communion is a blessing. So we focus on Him and not ourselves. His mercy and, and, not, and His love for us. His perfect work of forgiveness for us. And if, it wasn't with, if we were without that work, we'd be left in a state of, 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 of uh, still in our sin. But we can come to Him and know forgiveness. So what He's done, it's a moment to reflect on what He's done this morning. It's a moment to acknowledge His incredible mercy as we've been speaking today. It's a moment to say, thank you, Jesus. It's a moment to grasp a hold of the promises of God and say, thank you, it's for me today. And it's, I know that where I've been has not been good, but I know that coming to you, I, I need to focus on what you've done for me and what I need to continue to do. So this morning, could you just... Um, would you stand with me? Yeah, that'd be great. We'd just take a moment. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, Judas, Judas dobbed him in and betrayed him, and he was taken into the hands. And before into the hands of the, the Roman soldiers, before that happened, Jesus had this last supper. And he took the bread and he broke it and he said, you know what? He said, this is my body which is broken for you. They didn't understand at that moment, but after his death they did. And today it's just a biscuit. It represents nothing sacred in that biscuit in itself, but it's the remembrance of what Christ did. And then he took a cup after they'd kind of eaten their food and he shared it together. And he said, this cup represents the blood that has been poured out in the new promise that I set for you, the new covenant. No longer will you have to sacrifice animals to be forgiven for your sin, but I will sacrifice myself once and for all for the forgiveness of sin. That's a good deal. And he said, this cup has been poured out for you. And they didn't understand it at that moment, but they did after Jesus died and his blood was shed. And today we hold in our hands, just a, it's the remembrance. It's a representation of what Jesus Christ done for us. His, the biscuit represents his body that was broken. The cup represents his blood that was shed. So today, would you eat and drink in remembrance of what Christ done for you? Remembering him. Don't look at yourself as, oh, woe is me. No, look to him and see what he's done today. Let me pray. Father, today we thank you for your body that was broken. We thank you for the cup representing your blood that was shed. We thank you because that's life for us. It seems a very strange way for you to kind of give us a pardon and forgive us, but that's how it was. Because the system of the day, Lord, was all about sacrificing animals so that forgiveness of sins. Now we've, you've done it once and for all, and we thank you that we don't live on the, under the animal sacrifice system anymore, but we live under your system. Jesus, you're once and for all done it. And we thank you for that today. And so we take this cup and this, this biscuit today and we remember what you've done. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. So let's eat and drink in remembrance of him right now. You just thank him this morning. Take the moment. 